This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for November 16th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Ahead on our podcast, part one of an hour-long conversation with three nationally known presidential historians, offering some context on the Trump presidency, historian and presidential biographer Douglas Brinkley of Rice University, Civil War and Reconstruction-era historian Edna Green Medford of Howard University, and Richard Norton Smith is the biographer of a number of presidents, including Washington, Hoover, and now Gerald Ford. They were interviewed by C-SPAN's Brian Lamb as part of a forthcoming C-SPAN book on presidential leadership. The book will be published by Public Affairs in the spring of next year. Professor Edna Medford, where would you place Donald Trump in history, not based on his personality, but based on why he was able to win the election? Well, I think there was a perfect storm of sorts. Uh, You had a situation where you had the first black president uh, who had served two terms, and you had people who were still reeling from that change in American politics. Uh, You also had at the same time uh, a concern that uh, demographically the country was changing and that people who had been accustomed to power might soon lose that power. And so Trump gave them uh, the, the hope that perhaps they would regain what they felt that they had lost. Uh, There was also uh, a segment of the population that did not benefit initially from the changes that were being made economically. So as the country was uh, getting better economically, their lives had not changed very much. So they felt that they had been left behind. And then, of course, you have that, that whole political tribalism. So there's tremendous partisanship uh, during that period and continues, of course, uh, now in, into the, the second year of the, the Trump presidency. But certainly it was there long before he arrived. And so those things together, I think, helped to pave the way for him to become president. Richard, is there any time in uh... – history that uh, most uh, reflects what's going on now? Oh, well, certainly, I mean, and his comments are well taken in terms of the of the profound and sometimes hard to quantify uh, changes um, that, are, that are taking place in the culture. Um, and certainly, you go back to people talk about Trump as a populist. I think that's highly questionable. But nevertheless, there, there's an element of populist appeal, uh, us against them, them being the so-called elites. And you could you could go back 100-plus years um, to the late 19th century when authentic populism um, you know, came to life, if you will, um, particularly in the Midwest, dissatisfied farmers, miners, the, the people who who uh, made William Jennings Bryan, for example, um, possible, um, not once, but, but three times. Um, I think more recently, I'd say 50 years ago, when you had the parallel, I think it's, it's probably much closer. You had a country that had been and was going through 
um, tumultuous times, um, the assassination of a president, uh, an increasingly unpopular war, uh, increasing doubts about the truthfulness of the government regarding that war, um, the civil rights revolution, the women's movement, I mean, a whole host of of almost subterranean uh, seismic changes that were going on and that bred insecurity um, on the part of those who, um, as Edna says, were accustomed to holding power. Um, and then, you know, increasing economic uh, insecurity, uh, but clearly the, the racial factors are involved. Uh, George Wallace in 1968 was avowedly uh, running on a, on a what we would recognize as a, a racist platform. But to be perfectly blunt, um, there are many who believe that the Republican campaign that year, Richard Nixon's campaign, through code words like law and order, um, were sending out um, early versions of what we today call dog whistles. In other words, there was a sense that you know the times were out of joint. Um, something was was broken, and um, we were headed in a direction that that made many people uncomfortable, um, even as it offered some degree of encouragement to millions of people who, until that time, had in many ways been left out of the political and economic equation. And uh, when in history has there been this significant a change from one administration to the other? Oh, my. Um, I guess we could look at any number of them. Nothing comes to mind immediately now. Um, Gosh, I would have to think about that. Um, What about back of the... the, I mean, just... just, um, in terms of, are you talking about policy-wise, Brian? Well, I'm just. There's no way that you can look at the change from Barack Obama to to mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump without seeing a major shift and sure. personality and everything. And what other time in our history well, what, was it similar? Well, if you look at 1933, certainly going from um, the Hoover Depression, as it was popularly thought of. Um, I mean, ironically, historians taking the long view have actually seen elements of continuity between much of what Hoover was doing and, and, and many of the programs that, that FDR instituted. But clearly, clearly, it was in Roosevelt's interest and a measure of his political skill that he emphasized um, just how different he and his approach to governing would be. And uh, what about the Andrew Jackson, uh, John Quincy Adams to Andrew Jackson? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I was going to say from Lincoln to Andrew Johnson, which is a tremendous difference in terms of ability and in terms of how the two looked at what the country should be. Uh, But there's certainly the Jackson-John Quincy Adams uh, comparison is absolutely uh, extraordinary because you have someone, you have two people with very different personalities. 
You have John Quincy Adams, who would be seen very much as an elitist, uh, who came from you know a, a blue blood family in New England, versus Andrew Jackson, who was considered rather brash and uh, you know from the frontier. Uh, who was educated, but certainly not in the same way that John Quincy Adams was. Uh, you have someone like John Quincy Adams who's calling for a national university, while Andrew Jackson is remembered for what? He's remembered for reaching out to the common man, but at the same time, he's also promoting Indian removal. So these are very different administrations, uh, with Jackson uh, believing that government should operate in a certain way that's very different from what John Quincy Adams is looking at. Doug Brinkley, are you with us? I'm with you. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing good. Uh, we're, we've been talking about comparing this administration with others. Uh, from your own perspective, where does this administration fit in in history? Well, you know, I really look at things from a post-Civil War perspective, like how does Donald Trump um, fit in after the Civil War uh, once the original sin of slavery is abolished, how do presidents behave? And I see him as part of a, I, I think race has been a big part of Trump's presidency uh, from the time he took the escalator down and started on build the wall and saying Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. So uh, I, I see him as an Andrew Johnson-like president, um, meaning somebody who has impeachment swirling around him and somebody who's not able to um, close or heal a racial divide in the country. I don't see him like other presidents. Some people will say, well, he's a business person. Um, and, you know, Herbert Hoover was a business person. Uh, well, no, Herbert Hoover was a Stanford engineer who happened to make some money. Um, we've never had a president that's a business person like Donald Trump because, as you well know, Brian, CEOs have a board to report to. And President Trump's never had a board in his life. He was his own boss, kind of like a family kingpin. Um, so he got used to just barking orders and people would jump. And obviously, being president, that's tough because, you know, we have a Justice Department, FBI, State Department, there's protocol. And he's, if he's had a deficit, it's been, uh, as president, I think it's constantly trying not to abide by the rules we call it unprecedented presidency often, um, but it's really just that he's uh, a, he's just somebody who doesn't ever has never in his life had to take orders or follow protocol from anybody else. You met with him in uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, between his election and the inauguration. What can you remember from that uh, opportunity and how has he changed uh, since then and how much has he stayed on track with what he said he was going to do? He had me at Mar-a-Lago and I spoke to him about previous presidential inaugurations. Um, he was just starting to craft his own. His, his main concern was not to be long-winded, to keep it succinct. Uh, we talked about William Henry Harrison and that famous uh, long inauguration where after a month he caught pneumonia and then died a month later. Um, he seemed to be interested only in history of the television era, nothing beyond that. Um, and he lives by visual memory. He is a child of television. So he would refer to clips of John F. Kennedy, visuals that he's seen of Ronald Reagan. Uh, he said Reagan was his favorite president, um, but because of style, but he was an awful negotiator, and he'll be a much greater negotiator than Reagan. Reagan 
got his um, clock cleaned on global negotiation trade deals. Uh, but beyond that, he seemed to put Reagan the highest. He liked Jack Kennedy going to the moon in the sense of lifting the spirit of the American people on, a, on something. And I, I've noticed in the last few months he's been promoting a space force, Donald Trump, because uh, he saw the way Jack Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade as uh, a kind of a sign of American exceptionalism. Um, but he really is not, he, he's very, in one way, he's quite open booked because he admits he never reads books. Uh, he said to me, writing, you know, books are your thing. Um, he's really uh, not into um, reading about any presidents or about how anybody else did things. When uh, John McCain passed, it was noted in Arizona that his theme song was My Way. Well, that was Donald Trump's theme song also for his inaugural. And Trump just doesn't feel he can, needs to learn from the past um, because he learns from his own record of success in New York in the, in, um, and beyond as a, as a um, hotel maven and business person. Richard, on the issue of the media, and I know years ago there was no such thing called the media, but the relationship of uh, Donald Trump with the media and the press compared to other presidents, have there ever been... Was there ever a time when it was as difficult as this? Well, certainly Richard Nixon shared his uh, general attitude uh, toward the press. And that is to say, he looked upon the press as uh, as an enemy. Um, He thought of the media, in fact, as a conglomerate. Um, There were individuals here and there who might... Uh, on occasion, uh, give him and like-minded people um, uh, a fair shake. But but overwhelmingly, uh, it was an us-against-them approach that he took to the office. Um, uh, Look at the number of of journalists who showed up on the enemy's list. Um, And, I mean, this was something that... uh, that went back a long way, uh, certainly to the 1940s, um, at least a generation, um, just as Nixon was emerging and, and in, in some quarters was a hero for his pursuit of, of Alger Hiss. I mean, it's, it's no accident that Nixon would inevitably um, tell anyone who was around him for any period of time to be sure and study the his case. I mean, that, that clearly was a, a formative experience in all sorts of ways, including the fact that the press then, and then again, of course, in 1952, he, he thought that the coverage of the uh, um, the, the fund, I mean, when, when he was running for vice president in 1952, and the fact that he had a, a, a rather modest fund on the side that was um, used to, to pay some political expenses, and um, the New York Post, which was then a very liberal newspaper, uh, turned it into a, a scandal of sorts. The irony, of course, is, and then, then this completes the, the circle here, we get back to television. The irony is we all think of JFK as the first television president, but actually it was Richard Nixon who, with his checker speech in, in one half hour in September 1952, uh, not only saved his place on the ticket, but overnight established uh, a bond 
with millions of people who he later would call a silent majority. I mean, he, he was the only vice president, I think, up until that time who came into office with his own constituency. And it was it was really because of his use of, of television. And so, in any event, he... Um, the interesting thing is that he could he's also one of the last presidents who could use television much as he despised the the, the networks that he could use television um the oval office address in the nixon era was still um a major instrument of presidential persuasion um trump has inherited a very different kind of media climate but it is still possible for him, like Nixon, to portray the media as um, as somehow um, um, out to get him, and indeed a, a danger. Ironically, uh, a danger to democracy as as he defines it. And uh, earlier in our history, uh, any examples that you would have of the relationship between the printed press and, mm-hmm. and oh the yeah, yeah it's. It, it, there, there is a, a real animosity between the, the press and presidents as early as John Adams, because he's the person who is pushing for the Sedition Act of 1798. And what that act does is it actually tries to prevent criticism of the government and of the president. And so anybody who who is criticizing is it's, it's criminal. It's criminalized. So we think that we have always been in favor of a free press, but in actuality, we have not always behaved that way. At least our leaders have not, especially when they're being criticized. And you have other presidents as well. You have someone like Woodrow Wilson, who's really uh, – tampering with the freedom of the press by, by censorship and by propaganda because of World War One, You have a committee of public information that, that is established during this period. Uh, Truman certainly didn't like newspaper publishers. Johnson had problems with the press because of the Vietnam War or response to that. Uh, so what we see in President Trump uh, it may be alarming to some people, but it's not new in American politics. They, there may be a difference in terms of the extent to which that animosity is there, but it's certainly nothing new. Doug, can you remember any other time where attacking the press was to the benefit of a president? Um, it's, you know, I think with Donald Trump, it's better to look at other figures than presidents. Uh, everything Edna said is spot on. I mean, even Jack Kennedy tried to get the great David Halberstam banned from the New York Times because he didn't like his coverage. And we can go through each president's problems with the press. But in Donald Trump, we're dealing with the demagogue who is most like Huey Long. And in the current issue by Alicia Long, a professor um, wrote an article about Long in the press and you can see exact parallels of Donald Trump, uh, the way Huey Long tried to punish individual reporters, get um, his backers to um, heckle and uh, try to attack the personal lives of reporters. It's a straight page of what demagogues do. And fortunately, in American history, we haven't had demagogues. Um, Richard Nixon had a problem with the press and warred with the press, as we all know, and Richard spoke to but nothing to the extent of what Donald Trump is trying to do, where he's trying to almost incite violence against individual reporters. I mean, he's calling, you know, Carl Bernstein, uh, 
you know, a degenerate or uh, getting uh, or picking on um, Jim Acosta, C uh, CNN, and one could go on and on. It's there's a kind of anger and violence streak to it that seems to be um, steady with Trump, and I think he thinks it works for him because, as he says, and again, he can't be transparent. My enemy's the press. Democrats, I could step all over them, but the mainstream media is the real enemy. And I ha we haven't had a president that extreme uh, against going after reporters. All three of you know this w uh, better, certainly, than I do. But John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Harrison, Rutherford B. Hayes, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump all were elected by the Electoral College and did not get a plurality uh, of votes from the population at large. What impact does that event because they didn't get the popular vote, have on the presidencies in the past? Well, you know, Doug speaking here, I mean, I think that um, it makes it harder for a president to establish his credibility right out of the gate in recent times uh, when George W. Bush um, was elected, in a, but it had to go to the Supreme Court due to the problems in Florida. Uh, Bush had a tough time trying to convince a lot of Gore supporters that he was the real president. We see that with Hillary Clinton supporters. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say Hillary Clinton won by three million votes. She should be president. So Trump's not the real president. Um, so it, 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 it presents huge challenges for a president out of the gate because there's some residual anger that um, transpires that somehow there's an asterisk next to their name that they didn't win the popular vote. And some of it comes to the fact that we may not be teaching civics properly. A lot of people are confused about the Electoral College. They really believe democracy is about one person, one vote, and our system uh, uh, perplexes them through lack of studying of political science. Richard, Edna? I would, I would, despite the fact that there are challenges that these uh, presidents faced, it, they haven't been so much that we have been willing to move forward to discard the Electoral College. I mean, I, I think we, we would all agree that uh, the world was very different, the country was very different uh, when that uh, first occurred, when you had John Quincy Adams winning over um, Jackson, a, a very different era. But and, and we know why the Electoral College existed initially, but we still are not willing to move forward and just simply embrace the idea of the use of the popular vote. Richard? Yeah, and, and I would actually just um, add a footnote here. Um, it's interesting. If you look at these, these presidents individually, uh, Rutherford Hayes, for example, taking office in, in this tumultuous period after the Civil War, when so much was up for grabs, um, and um, he was referred to as his fraudulency, um, by by the opposition, and indeed, I think um, had real real problems establishing his legitimacy. Now, he he uh, he said he would be a one-term president voluntarily, and I think when he left office, um, held in much higher regard than he entered. John Quincy Adams, who was a very kind of remote. Um, uh, unlovable in a lot of ways figure, a man who gave exactly one public speech in the course of four years, who seemed to be uh, uh, almost disdainful 
of 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 the of the arts of popularity, um, and yet look to the 2000 election that Doug referred to. Um, to my way of thinking, it was almost uh, surprising given the prolonged period of uncertainty after the election, when emotions, which were already uh, running high, uh, were inflamed even more. It was the story was how quickly. Most people um, resigned themselves, if you want to say, but any of it accepted the legitimacy of George W. Bush's election. Um, I think I don't think that was repeated with Donald Trump because I think, in many ways, Donald Trump, the way he chose to govern, made it harder for for people, including many who would uh, who were willing to repeat history. There's a lot of coverage about the fact that he goes to Fox News all the time uh, for his main outlet for what he has to say. There was almost no coverage during the Obama administration that he did 19 different interviews for 60 minutes. Why was why? And that was the biggest audience that there is on any news uh, operation in the country. Why is there so much concentration on the Fox News part of it and not, say, on 60 Minutes, which was uh, no one, no other president in history ever had that many appearances? You know, I think that that's a good point, Brian, and um, it's, I'm glad you raised it. Um, there probably should have been more. Um, uh, you know, 60 Minutes has tried to uh, position itself as being an investigatory operation, but in my opinion, view over the years, it does seem to have tilted towards um, the liberals or towards the left. I have had no trouble with Donald Trump's uh, appearances on Fox News. He's welcome to go on there as often as he likes. The problem becomes when Donald Trump repeats a number of times that the press is the enemy of the people. Um, you know, he is Bill Shy now working on the White House for Fox. He talks to Sean Hannity all the time. Um, So be it. Um, Politicians, presidents are going to have favorite reporters and favorite news outlets. Um, But it's only when you start trying to incite um, the American people to go after individual reporters by name or to try to demonize a particular, uh, um, you know, media executive in a reckless fashion. Um, You know, you asked me about my visit with Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago. One thing he did say to me, we talked about news media, and he said, well, there's only one press lord. There's only one press lord. And I, I was stunned by the way he kept saying the word press lord, because you don't hear it said that often these days. And then he said, Rupert Murdoch, that's who matters. Um, and he sees it that as long as he has a relationship, Trump, with Murdoch, and he can use Fox, that that gives him the base that holds his base together. And he's going to continue to, to um, use that in the same way Barack Obama probably tilted towards CBS and NBC. But there's a huge difference between, uh, I, in my opinion, um, uh, a program like 60 Minutes, which over 50 years um, has established itself as uh, a national institution uh, with, a, with a very large, uh, very diverse audience. Um, and, and also became a, a go-to place. When, when Bill Clinton's uh, candidacy hung by a, by a thread uh, in 1992, um, following um, revelations of, of uh, sexual hijinks, um, 
who did Bill and Hillary Clinton, where did they go? They went for 60 minutes. Um, Fox, on the other hand, quite frankly, purports to be a, um, a journalistic outfit that's highly dubious. Um, it is clearly and increasingly perceived as straight propaganda um, with an agenda uh, that uh, may come directly from Mr. Murdoch. But in any event, it, it, it's, um, uh, it's motive, it's, it's function, it's purpose. Um, you know, CBS and 60 Minutes holds a, a place in our history that I think is very different from uh, Fox and Friends. And, uh, and of course, if, you, if you're billing yourself as a populist president, you are going to embrace those networks where you think the common man is more likely to tune in. And so there is that that idea that there are elitist organizations and there, there are those that cater to the average American, whether or not that's true or not. But that's the perception that the common man has. And so that he's going to Fox News rather than going to some of these other networks. And so if you are a Donald Trump and you are trying to have those folks to identify with those folks, then you're going to go where you think your audience is. And he knows that he's going to have support in those areas. This is the only chapter in the book where uh, the president will not be rated because he's only been in office a little over two years. What do you three think is the proper time to judge a president and where they fit into the history of this country? Well, we all like Remember to. Remember, Richard Nixon said famously uh, it would take 50 years before anyone could write objectively about him. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure he was uh, far wrong. It, a lot depends on if it's a polarizing president, um, which, which um, interestingly enough, seems to be increasingly the trend. Um, you know, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, different as they are in in their policies, in their styles, each of them, before they left office, um, had bred fatigue. Um, each of them had, um, had, had become divisive figures, uh, presumably against their own will. And consequently, I think uh, each of them will require more time, not less, before those passions cool and papers become available and we begin to have the perspective uh, that, that really only comes with time. Yeah, I, w I was going to say, um, you know, we used to say it was a 25-year rule that we would wait till, you know, Freedom of Information Act cut, kicks in and scholars start getting the first wave of documents, so you needed like a 25-year cushion um, Nixon may have said 50, but we get the idea. You got to boot, boot it down a little ways. Uh, I don't know if that holds true because America's changed. Uh, we are uh, in a social media environment. Every moment people are doing rankings and pollings and listings, and I think it's going to happen immediately. I mean, people are going to judge Donald Trump the day he leaves office. He's going to be ranked and assessed, and then you have the chance of revision. And um, from working on the C-SPAN poll, you see some presidents, look how Harry Truman left office and people said to air is Truman and he had a 27% approval rating. And, um, and now we rank him as a top five 
American president. Um, so, you know, it's a or six, uh, but, you know, in the top group. And so it's um, I think we just can't kind of do the big timeouts anymore. I once went, guys, to the Reagan library to try to get the um, Ronald Reagan's perhaps letters to Pope John Paul II. And I try to look how long the Vatican waits till they release documents, you know, a thousand years till they release anything. I think in America now it's about instantaneousness. People are going to make quick judgments when they find out whether Donald Trump survived his first term, whether he got reelected. And if he does get reelected, uh, what's the country look like immediately? I mean, we, we put George W. Bush quite low on polls because of the Great Recession, Katrina, and the war in Iraq. He might get a revision later, but um, you're going you're gonna to get slotted in the list the second you leave office. Yeah, you know, I think rankings change with each generation because each generation has a different perspective of what they what they consider important about these administrations. But I think that we do need one generation of space to really get a sense of what these people actually did and what kind of impact they had on the nation. But having said that, I hope that when I write about this period, even though it will be a generation away, that I will have the kind of of perspective, uh, the the kind of insight that will uh, provide uh, some real uh, information about actually what happened. So absolutely, we need to wait a while. But as historians, I think we have to expect, uh, or we are expected, to really weigh in fairly quickly on what has occurred. But we can assume that those opinions are going to change over time. You have been listening to part one of our conversation with presidential historians Douglas Brinkley, Edna Medford, and Richard Norton Smith, the three taking part in an hour-long conversation with C-SPAN's Brian Lamb, offering historical context on the Trump presidency, part of C-SPAN's forthcoming book, The Presidents, noted historians on the lives and leadership of America's best and worst chief executives. It will be published by Public Affairs in April of next year. Part two of this conversation will air next week, and C-SPAN's The Weekly is available on the free C-SPAN radio app under the podcast tab.